The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for his kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow our Facebook page and visit shadygrovepca.org. We are looking at 1 Corinthians 10. We're going through the epistle of Corinthians and we're looking at the first 14 verses this morning. And the title of this message is Flee from Idolatry. And that kind of begs a question, what is idolatry? Well, what is idolatry? The first commandment in the Ten Commandments is you shall have no other gods before me. So idolatry is having other gods before the true and living God. And essentially whatever's in the center of your life. And at the center, that begins to control what's most important to you, what you value, what you love, what you daydream about, what you think about and meditate upon, what you give your all to. And if Jesus isn't this all in all and this center and the rooting and grounding of our identity of who we are in Christ, then something else must become the center. Take Dan and Susan as an example. This is from an article called Modern Idolatry produced by CCEF or Christian Counseling Education Foundation. Susan married Dan with the desire they'd build a life together. She hoped their marriage would make them happy. For a while it did. But after about three years, it became starkly obvious to Susan that Dan's first love was his job. Dan's extreme attachment to his job converted his job into an idol for him. Susan's extreme attachment to the ideal of a certain kind of marriage converted marriage into an idol for her. Dan was looking for his job to give his life meaning. Susan was looking to marriage to give her life meaning. Susan complained to Dan constantly about how he was spending too much time at work and Dan justified this by saying he was doing it for her and the kids and this is his way of loving his family. Each was becoming embittered with the other and their expectations. Each was committed to their idols and their idols were at war with one another. That's idolatry. Take Jenny. Jenny's a pretty woman of 30. She's married, has a child, her husband loves her, yet she's got two problems. She doesn't think she's very attractive. She worries about her weight and she's very insecure in relationships. Second, when she's had a rough day and she's stressed out, she secretly binges on food, downing a whole box of cereal or a half gallon of ice cream. For a moment she feels satisfied, then her satisfaction turns to horror and fear. Afraid of gaining weight, she runs to the bathroom and forces herself to vomit. Jenny is sinning not just by disobeying God with her vanity or lack of self-control, but by wanting two things more than she wants God's grace. First, she wants attractiveness so that others will notice her. This works powerfully in her heart, robbing her of her joy of delighting in Christ who is inherently more attractive in his glory and grace. But secondly, she wants comfort when she is stressed so much so that she will commit gluttony rather than finding satisfaction in the bread that Jesus offers to her hungry soul. She doesn't eat because she's hungry. She eats for the sensation and comfort that the food brings. She's very loyal to her two gods, giving them full allegiance but when the God of attractiveness says you must lose weight, she did. She tried to cheat the God 
When she was upset, the other god of physical relief offered her the blessing of comfort if she devoured some food in bulk. She believed this god's promise and found the comfort, but not for long. The other god was angry and required a sacrifice of atonement. She complied by going to the bathroom and forcing herself to vomit. You see, false gods always demand a sacrifice. And only in Jesus and in the gospel of Christ will you find rest for your soul as he's already sacrificed everything for us. That's what it means to flee from idolatry. Hear how Paul puts this in 1 Corinthians 10. I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation is, is overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your abil ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. May pray for us. Father, these are your words, not my words. And we thank you for the Holy Spirit inspiring these words, and we ask now that you would apply and speak directly to each of us, and that your word would have its way in us, and that it would yield good fruit in our lives. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's consider, I want to look at three quick things this morning. The advantages that Israel had, yet the apostasy that took place in Israel with many of them, and then some observations from that. So first of all, the advantages enjoyed by Israel. I mean, Paul begins here and he's just saying, and, and it's interesting how he uses the word brothers 35 times in 1 Corinthians. So he's wanting that everybody to have a sense of community because it was a, it was a fragmenting group um, and so, and he's appealing to them. These are mainly Gentiles, and yet he's reminding them, your brothers were the Old Testament church because we're all one in Christ and because there's unity in the whole Bible, we can look back at the Old Testament and say that was the Old Testament church and that's my brothers and sisters, even though I'm not a, a, a literal a physical Jew. And so he's appealing to them, brothers, our fathers, our fathers, these are our fathers, people that went before us in the Old Testament. They were the covenant community. And they, they, were, they were led by the cloud of God's glory. They had the waters of the Red Sea parted for them and they went through on dry ground. They were supernaturally provided with food and water and Christ himself was accompanying them. And yet in the midst of all that, they had all these advantages and yet they didn't persevere. 
Notice the word all in those first four verses. It's very intentional. Paul just keeps using the word all, I think, five times. They were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses, all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the spiritual drink. And the idea is that they all started off great. They all were in the race. All were running well. Nevertheless, we get to verse five, and the shocker is the word most. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. All, 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 most. And most didn't make it. And so he's saying to to Corinth, hey, you and Israel have a very similar identity. You both have great stories of deliverance. You both have been delivered from from bondage. You both have have experienced a baptism. They were baptized into Moses and identified with him and you've had your baptism and and they had their Lord's Supper. It was this rock that was feeding, they drank from the same spiritual drink and they all ate the same spiritual food which was the manna from heaven. They were experiencing a sacramental Uh, experience with the Lord just as you receive it at the Lord's table so you're just like them you're both sustained by God and they were and Israelites were literally sustained food and drink the Corinthians by spiritual food and drink and yet what Paul is saying to them is this is what he's been saying since chapter 8 if you go into the temple and you're and you're where all these you know, uh, demons are and there's things are offered to these false gods and there's uh, temple prostitution and you think you can go there and then come into the church and have communion, you can't have both. And so to come to Christ is, is always a leaving. It's a leaving and a cleaving. You gotta leave sin and cleave to Christ. And so he's reminding them that they too started off well, and they're in danger now, the, the church in Corinth, of not finishing well. And so the same would be for us today, is that these things are just as much true as, as the people of Israel were, were tempted in certain ways, and the people of Corinth in very similar ways. Our culture in America is a lot like Corinth. Are, are we not tr- attracted to certain mega popular preachers? And I follow Tim Keller, or I follow John MacArthur, or I follow John Piper, and we have these big names, and, and we have these big celebrities, and they had big celebrities in their day. They had, they had a Paul and Apollos, and then they had the false apostles, and people were choosing, and they were getting divided over that. And then there were issues, big issues of sexual immorality that were affecting the church. That's a huge issue in our culture. You can't hardly go through the TV. If you were to just take your... your remote and go through the channels one time. How much would you see just going through the channels one time? Much less on the internet where you're three clicks away from getting in major trouble. This is a huge problem in the church. And so the things are are very similar. And just as the people of God, what was happening with the people of Corinth is somehow they thought, they had this, on the one hand, they had this over-realization of what they thought communion would do. They thought communion would fix everything. We can sin all we want, but if we come to communion and we come to the Lord's table, we're all good and everything gets fixed and we can continue to live like that during the week. And what, what 
John Piper and his message on this says, 1 Corinthians 10 is, is all about the rest of the week besides the Lord's table. What are you doing the rest of the week? Because if you're doing stuff the rest of the week, it is in accord with this table, then you actually could be bringing yourself under judgment when you come to the table. And actually, that's what's happening. By the end of 1 Corinthians 11, he tells him that some of them had actually died from coming to the table irreverently, and some were getting drunk, and others were going away hungry, and God says judgment's coming down, and some of them have died. That's not Old Testament. That's New Testament. Same God. So we have to to look carefully at these examples here of the apostasy committed by Israel. So verses 5 to 10, Paul outlines a big survey of Old Testament history. And so verse 7 is a reference to the golden calf story of idolatrous uh, worship. I'm going to come back to verse 7. Verse 8 He says we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did and 23,000 fell in one day. That's the story of Israel getting entangled with the daughters of Moab and Baal worship. And while Moses was calling out this sin, telling the judges of Israel that they're gonna have to kill those who had yoked themselves to Baal worship, some guy brazenly takes a Midianite woman before the whole congregation of Israel and his family and takes her into the tent while everyone's weeping about their sins. Phineas, who's the grandson of Aaron and son of Eliezer, grabs a spear, goes into the tent, kills both of them at the same time while they're in the act of immorality. And Phineas is commended both in Numbers 25 and also in Psalms because uh, he turned back God's plague that had come on the people by his courageous action. That's not a typical story that ever gets preached about, but you can, you can read Numbers 25 and sobering. Uh, then you got verse nine as a reference to Israel in Numbers 21 of putting God to the test. And so verse nine says, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. And so um, Numbers 21 verse five says, the people of God, They spoke against God and against Moses, and they said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water. Does that sound like what we just read in Psalm 78? There's no food and no water. I mean, they're eating the bread of angels, is what God says. And yet they say, we have no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. They were essentially putting Christ to the test by demanding meat and showing contempt for God's provision. Even though they're eating the bread of angels, God's providing for them, they're loathing his provision. They are not happy with their present state. Several of these come back to impatience. When Moses was up on the mountain receiving the 10 commandments and he delayed in coming down, the people were got impatient. They loathe the provision of God. And then they impugned motives to God that he's brought us out of Egypt to die. Is that really why God brought you out of Egypt? I thought it was because he heard you praying. He heard you crying out. And he, re- he saw and he remembered. And so he comes to deliver his people. And yet they're accusing him of bringing us out to die. God does not like when his people want to go back to Egypt. Um, and they brought judgment on themselves and their apostasy. 
Verse 10 is a grumbling against the leaders. So the idea of verse 10 says they were destroyed by the destroyer is this is with Korah and the Korah's rebellion. They didn't think anything was special about Moses and Aaron. We're, we're all just like Moses and Aaron and we don't like that, you know, they're, they've been marked out as something special and, and what does the Lord do? He says, separate them from me. And Moses says, well, if, if God does something incredible, like if the earth opens up and swallows them, then you'll know that, I, that I'm from the Lord. You know, and all of a sudden, poof, it happens. Well, the next day, the people mount a little coup and they come to Moses and Aaron, they say, you have killed the people of the Lord. It wasn't Moses or Aaron that caused the earthquake that swallowed Korah and his household, yet the people now are rebelling. And if you remember the story, Aaron had to run with his censer and make atonement uh, as a picture of Christ interceding on behalf of the people as a plague had broken out and lots of people were dying. This is all true stuff. God can take us out. So there has to be a, a reverence for him. Now come back to verse uh, seven. So verse seven says, don't be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Well, this is referring to the golden calf. So you remember Moses is up on the mountain. He's receiving the 10 commandments and Aaron, second in command, the, the associate pastor, so to speak, is given his first chance to lead in worship. But the people come to him and they say, we want to make a few tweaks to the worship service. And the tweak is, we would like to add another deity to worship. And uh, we're going to, let's make a, a, a bull. Let's make a golden calf. And here we learn an important lesson as Aaron gives in to the people and he fashions this golden calf and of course he tells what does he tell Moses when Moses confronts him that that I just threw all this stuff in the fire and and out came this calf I I didn't have anything to do with it and of course the chapter ends with repeating again the one that Aaron made when it when it cites their idolatry in Exodus 32 but the important lesson and here it is which was harder for God to get Israel out of Egypt or Egypt out of Israel? Which was harder? Getting Israel out of Egypt was a one-time miraculous deliverance, but getting Egypt out of Israel took 40 years at least because their hearts were so quick to worship Egypt's gods and they continually wanted to go back to Egypt. Let's appoint a leader and go back to Egypt. Why did the Israelites worship a cow? Because they had never entirely forsaken the gods of Egypt. That was an Egyptian god. They worshiped all kinds of stuff like that. They promised to serve the Lord their God, but in their hearts they still cherished old idolatries. So their central heart inclination needed to be changed. The Bible says in their hearts they turned back to Egypt Acts 7:39. And there's something convenient about turning back to Egypt and its gods. R.C. Sproul, who's now with the Lord, said the cow gave no law, the cow demanded no obedience. It had no wrath or justice or holiness to be feared. It was deaf, dumb, and impotent. But at least it could not intrude on their fun and call them to judgment. 
This was a religion designed by men, practiced by men, and ultimately useless for men, and yet ordained by Aaron, and Aaron led them in it. And this idolatry quickly morphed to immorality. It quickly becomes perverted and debauched. It, it degenerated quickly into sensuality and sexual immorality. There's nothing about the glory of God, only the shame of man. It doesn't take much to go from the true worship of God to a golden calf to perversion and an orgy. It's a sad state about man. And God isn't pleased. And these things provoke God to bring plagues to deal with their apostasy. And so what does Paul say to us and to the church in Corinth? You say, well, that never happened to me. That's the one thing he says, never say, verse 12. The, the, the imperative here is to take heed or to observe. If you think you're standing firm, you think, oh, I'm, I'm the man. Well, isn't the Bible just full of stories of people that, that they're doing great and the next chapter they're falling into great sin? You read the story of Solomon and, and you, know, you go from this incredible experience where the Queen of Sheba comes and, and basically she might as well be describing paradise. The people here are incredibly treated. Your wisdom is incredible. Everything is just amazing. You get done there reading that chapter and you're like, man, this is like heaven come down. The next chapter, his heart is turned astray from foreign women and he's drifting towards apostasy. David is doing so great, but then he decided not to go out to war and he's taking a long nap in the afternoon and he gets up and he goes out on his porch and he sees Bathsheba and you know the rest of the story and it ain't good and the rest of his life is trouble Abraham I mean we just keep going on with references so don't don't think that well I'm doing good and that I'm not yesterday's mercies are not going to give you the strength for tomorrow's challenges you need his mercies every morning and we need to cling to him every day and so the warning here, the observation is, first of all, we need to recognize that what caused Israel to sin and was causing the Corinthian church to sin is the same things that cause you and I to sin. We have an inclination. We have to be unconformed more and more to this world and transform more and more to his image. And so that's the first thing. But we do that through habit-shaping experiences, okay? And that means the disciplines of grace. We come to the Lord's table. We make a commitment to come to church. We make a commitment to come to God's people. But we have to be more and more engaged in, in, in habit-forming disciplines that will incline the heart. And if we just get consumed with exercise and Kavanaugh's confirmation and how did Conor McGregor do last night? Not very well. And my chores and children's athletics and we begin to neglect and nourish our souls if we just get consumed with everything else that this world is just pumping at us 24-7. So we have to form exercises that will minister to our souls. Secondly, we can never blame this on God, verse 13. Some of you might be tempted to think, well, my temptation is too great. You don't understand my unique situation. 
Well, your unique situation doesn't trump the promise of verse 13. Verse 13 is a promise. You are being, you're not being tempted beyond your ability, meaning you can never lay the blame for your sin and put that over onto God or over onto the devil. You can never do that. And then the second, the promise is, is that God provides a way of escape. God has promised that, that he will provide a way of escape. Tim Keller has this interesting illustration where he talks about whitewater kayaking. He says, imagine you're whitewater kayaking, you get to this point where all of a sudden the water just narrows in and it's narrowing and it's getting faster and faster, but there's a huge rock in front of you and there's no way to avoid the rock and you're certain you're gonna be dashed. And he says, and you pray really hard that you'll get through this. Well, what are you praying? He says, you know, we want the rock to disappear. We want the rock to move. Well, either the rock will move or the waters will rise and you'll go over it. He says, and which one do you think that God tends to do more in our life? He tends to give us the grace to go through the situation. And so the rock doesn't necessarily move, but the water is lifted and we got through it. But we have to trust him in the midst of these difficult times that each of you as the Holy Spirit begins to pinpoint different areas where our struggle is often to be impatient and to forget his goodness and then to complain and to grumble and murmur against leaders or other key individuals. And what is Paul saying here? Flee idolatry. And to flee idolatry means you have to rest in Christ. Because if you're, you gotta flee, you gotta flee to something else. So fleeing idolatry means trusting Jesus, resting in Jesus. He's the rock. And the interesting thing is this rock was the one who was struck for you. The very rock that is this pillar of strength. He says, stand before the rock. I'll I'll stand before the rock for you. Here's the lawsuit. You're guilty. Of, of this was a criminal lawsuit that was brought against the people of God and God says, I'll go before you and I'll take the blows. Strike the rock and the sheep will be scattered. What Jesus said, he's referring to himself. Jesus took the blows. He took all of our punishment and that's why we can come to this table and find nourishment for our souls. Let's pray. Lord, forgive us. We're too quick to complain, grumble, murmur, slow to linger in your words, slow to memorize scripture, slow to pray, slow to lean upon you, quick to turn to our own resources, our own energy, our own strength, money and power, things that we think will satisfy. And so Lord, we... We come running afresh to you this morning. We know that you are, there's none like you. You are the rock. You are our fortress. You are our deliverer. Be our all in all, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.